Let's turn there as we prepare our hearts to Hebrews chapter 12. Grateful for Scott reading scriptures today and thankful for Scott and Nikki being with us. And God bless you folks. So glad that you're here. And uh, so wonderful to have them part of our mission team. And they've been great friends. I was thinking uh, 37 years that we have been friends. Uh, I think we met in pre-kindergarten, I believe. That's where it was, if I remember, right? <laughs> but uh, no, we go back to early, early days up in Finley, Ohio. I'm so grateful for Scott and Nikki and privilege of being partners with them. As we are here this Sunday for worship, rarely do I like to take us away from the moment that we're in, but I do want you to be in prayer and to encourage you to be a part of next Sunday service, our anniversary Sunday. Hope that you invite friends. We want everybody to celebrate this, our 57th anniversary that will be next Sunday. And also, it will be the 30th anniversary of the uh, dedication of our first auditorium. And uh, some of you are seated in that one because uh, we added on to it. But uh, 30 years ago next Sunday, we actually dedicated this first building uh, for the Lord. We're looking forward to dedicating it again uh, this coming Sunday. I wonder how many of you were here on that first Sunday, September 25th, 1988. Some of you say, no, I wasn't here at all. I wasn't even on the planet at that time. How many anybody here was in that service? Raise your hand. Okay. There's a few that have endured to the end, almost, okay? And thank you, it was wonderful. We had a handful there in the, in the first service as well. But how faithful God has been. And so next Sunday we do a gather to celebrate our past, to praise the Lord for what he's doing in our present. And by God's grace, look forward to the future, to the vision, the 2020 vision that the Lord has given to us. And we've been talking about that for an over a year, and next Sunday we'll have some things to share with you and to show you as well about our campus development, the plans for the construction here on this site. And uh, the church has been called to a number of times to affirm steps forward, and next Sunday at our, our family gathering at 5 o'clock, uh, we uh, will have that final affirmation so that, Lord willing, uh, we can begin in the not-too-distant future on the construction of that first phase. But we'll be sharing more about that, and I hope that you'll plan to be a part of next week. You possibly can, and then come for the fellowship as our anniversary picnic follows in, in the evening next Sunday. So it's going to be a great day. But today is a great day, right? It's the Lord's Day, so let's savor this moment that we have. Twelve years ago, uh, my son Stephen and I were really blessed to take a trip together. It was a mission trip that we were able to take to Greece. I was invited uh, to come and speak by one of our missionary partners, Photos uh, Romeos, and uh, he oversees AMG, uh, the uh, great mission uh, in that part of the world. And there were about 300 missionaries that gathered at this beautiful camp in the uh, northeastern corner of Greece, right on the Aegean Sea. It was incredible, incredible uh, experience. Beautiful sight. Now, it was an outdoor gathering, and it was also in the midst of the greatest heat wave Europe had known in over 100 years. And I remember having these very festive kind of Greek-colored shirts on and just watching them change color uh, as, I was, uh, as I was speaking. It was incredibly hot. 
But uh, one of the treats of that uh, time that we were there, uh, Steve and I got there a little bit early. So on the Sunday before this conference began, uh, the assistant director asked if we'd like to go up on a trip up to the top of Mount Olympus with him. We thought, well, sure, absolutely. And so he took us in his car, and we went up the, almost to the top. It was about 9,000 feet, over 9,000 feet. It overlooks the Aegean Sea, one of the most beautiful sights. Now, two things I remember about that trip up that mountain. Number one, we went up in about the smallest car. Well, I'm sure the smallest car I've ever been in my entire life. I thought they were going to need the jaws of life to get me out of that thing when we got to the top. But also remember, there were no guardrails going up the road. It was, it was a beautiful, beautiful scene, but who wanted to look? You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, scare the fool out of you. And so we got there, and then at the top, it, there were incredible vistas, uh, just breathtaking. But then you could also take these trees back into the woods. It's amazing. And so Steve and I were going down this trail together. And while we were there in this thick woods, all of a sudden this person ran past us. And I thought, surely that didn't just happen. And when we went a little farther, somebody else ran past us. Then another person ran past us. Then another one. I thought, what is going on? And runner after runner came past. And finally, there was one man about my age. He wasn't doing so good. <laughs> He was moving slow enough that I could get hold of him. And I said, excuse me, you speak English. What? He said, yes. I said, what's going on? He said, well, this, this is the Olympus Marathon. And it's held on the last Sunday of June every year. We start the race down at the bottom at the ancient city of Dion, which was considered a sacred city. Dion meaning God. And there was a sacred trail that led up to the top of Mount Olympus and a temple there which was believed to be at the base of the home of the gods. And Zeus, of course, considered to be the greatest of the gods. And there would be this, this celebration that would take place. And so this race was being done on Mount Olympus on that ancient trail. And it was hot. I mean, in probably over 100 degrees that day. And they were running this race. And I was thinking, why? <laughs> because I'd been down to the bottom and they had the most delicious gelatos you've ever tasted in your life. I'm thinking, that's my kind of marathon right there. Every flavor they got. Now, that's a marathon I'm up to. But why, why would they run in the heat? Why would they endure this race? One reason. The mountain. It's Mount Olympus. To say it's historic is such a, such a contradiction in terms. I mean, it's ancient, mythical. It's the mountain. You get to run the mountain. And so they endured the training. They endured everything to get there on that incredibly hot day. They endured that race because of the experience of the mountain. Now, Hebrews 12 has as its theme endurance. Endurance. 
These believers, especially these particular believers who are addressed this letter, who are Jewish believers in Jesus, have gone through such terrible persecution and affliction. They've, they've had to sacrifice so much. They think about turning back. And the writer has been telling them reason after reason after reason why Jesus is better and not to settle for less. But here in this passage that Scott has read for us, he, he brings it all to an apex. He says, this is the reason that you need to endure. You need to endure because of the mountain. You need to endure because of the mountain. Not the mythical pagan mountain of Olympus to gods who do not exist, but to the true mountain, the mountain of God. Because of that mountain, keep running, keep going. He's writing about our enduring motivation and he's giving some lessons from some mountaintops that's what connects this whole story that we've just read it is a challenge to keep going because of the mountaintops now notice there are two mountaintops that are compared here. Notice, first of all, two mountaintops. And you'll see the comparison. If you look at verse 18, we are told, you have not come. Do you see that? You have not come, verse 18. And then drop down to verse 22. You might want to mark these two statements. Verse 18, you have not come. Verse 22, you have come. You have not come to this mountain but you have come to this mountain, so keep running. Now notice, what is the first mountaintop? The first mountaintop is a reference to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, where God gave the law to his people Israel as they were gathered in his presence around Mount Sinai, verses 18 through 22 refer us back to that. He says, and you have not come to what may be touched. You have not come, that is, to something that's physical. And you specifically have not come to a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. You've not come to that mountain where there was the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. And they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, he is describing the events that had happened to the Jewish people nearly 1,500 years earlier when they had been led as slaves out of Egypt, freed by their delivering, emancipating God, brought through the Red Sea, and God led them to the Arabian Peninsula to this mountain, Mount Sinai. 
And there at that mountain, the people were gathered round and God himself descended upon that mountaintop. And God himself, with a voice that they could hear, began to declare in a thunderous, thunderous voice the words of the law. And the whole scene, the whole scene epitomized something very important for those people to know. God wanted those people to know that their gods that they had known in Egypt, these gods that the Egyptians worshipped, they were not the true God. But he was the only true God, the one who had brought them out of bondage. He was the one true God. And they were his people. And there was none like him, none beside him. And he wanted them to understand that his awesome holiness was the very expression of his existence, that he was a holy God. This God, their Savior. God spoke and the people trembled. The earth shook. There was lightning and thunder. The sounding blaring and blaring and blaring of trumpets. It was so overwhelming that Moses himself, who knew God so intimately, he was shaken. He said, I tremble with fear. Now what's the writer's point? We have to stop here. Why is the writer describing this? Because there are people who are thinking about going back to the law. There are people who have professed faith in Jesus. They've been following Jesus. Now because of the difficulties and the trials and the challenges, they're thinking of going back. And the writer is saying, do you want to turn away from Jesus? Do you want to go back to the law? That's where the law will take you. It will take you to Sinai and the thundering voice of God and to his awesome holiness and to commandments that you cannot keep. That's where the law will will take you. But that's not where the gospel takes you. And this is where the whole message turns because he says, we are not of those who go back to Mount Sinai, but we are those of the gospel. We are people who have become followers of the Lord Jesus. And the gospel brings us not back to a place of our awesome sense of our guilt before a holy God. No, the gospel brings us to a place where we know reconciliation. It brings us to Mount Zion. That's the next mountain that he describes. Mount Zion, beginning in verse 22 down through verse 24. Now let's... Think about Mount Zion. He's comparing Mount Sinai with Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? Well, physically, Mount Zion was a craggy mountaintop in the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. It was for 
generations a Jebusite fortress that no one could capture or take. But finally, David, with his mighty men, came against that Jebusite fortress of Zion, and they captured it. And David chose it to be his dwelling place, his home. And so Mount Zion became known as the city of David, the city of David. And there the tribes came to pledge their allegiance to their king, King David. But David did not just want to unify the people to himself. More than that, he wanted to unify the people around their covenant God. So God sent word, David rather, sent word for the Ark of the Covenant and the tent, the tabernacle, to be brought to his city. And so the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's covenant with his people, the dwelling place of God, and the tent were brought up to the city of David. And David erected the tabernacle there on Mount Zion. David's desire was to build a temple there for his God. But God said, you will not build me this temple. Your hands are hands of blood. You have been a warrior. But of your son, Solomon, I will make of him a man of peace. He will know my peace. And you may prepare for the temple, but your son, Solomon, will build it. And there, Solomon, through years of construction, built the wonder of the ancient world. This incredibly lavish, beautiful building of the temple. And on a special day, Solomon and all the gathered host of Israel dedicated the temple. And Solomon led them all in prayer. And while Solomon was praying, the fiery cloud of God came and rested upon that temple. And his glory was so great in that building that the priests could no longer stand to be inside. And they had to leave. And all the people of God, along with their king Solomon, they bowed their faces to the ground as God came and inhabited that temple. It was The city of God. Mount Zion, the city of God. But now listen. That city of God, Mount Zion, is only a figure. It was only a type of the reality in heaven. You see, God told Moses to make everything about the worship service, to make it according to the pattern that he had shown them because it was to represent what was happening in the true city of God, the true Mount Zion, the true dwelling place of God in heaven. And that is where Christians have come. Verse 22 We have come, verse 22, to Mount Zion. It doesn't mean we've gone to Jerusalem. It doesn't mean that we've gone to that sacred spot. It's wonderful to do that. 
But whether you ever make a journey to Jerusalem in your lifetime or not, if you are a believer, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the dwelling place of God. God has made himself known to you and you have come to him. You're already there. You're already there. Don't you love this? It's the perfect tense. Not you will come. Did you notice that? Not one day by and by you're going to get there. No, you have come. You're already there. You're already part of that city. You're already one of the inhabitants. It's already happened. You see, for us as believers, this is that already not yet tension that we live in. Through Jesus Christ and by his grace, we're already sons and daughters of God. We're already citizens of the new Jerusalem. We're already enrolled there. We're already those to inherit it. But not yet. It's not yet our personal experience, but it's already a reality. The gospel brings us to this. Now, notice where the gospel brings everyone who has been born again. If you are a believer in Jesus, you may think, as I do often, boy, the Lord's brought me a long way. Oh, you can't imagine how far he's brought you. Look how far he's brought you. This is the pinnacle of the book of Hebrews. Verses 22 through verse 25, this is everything the writer has been pleading with. This is the reason he says you cannot turn back. Do not go back. Don't go back to Mount Sinai. There's nothing like Jesus. Don't settle for less. You have come. Where have you come? Verse 22. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, a place where God in his presence, manifested presence, specifically shows his glory. There's a city, the city of the living God. It really exists, Mount Zion. It's the new Jerusalem that John, in the book of the Revelation, saw coming down from heaven. It's real. You've come there. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to innumerable angels Who is in that city? Well, along with others that are there, the Bible says there are 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands of angels who are in festal display. That means they are dressed in their glorious gowns and worshiping God day and night. That's who's there. You've come there. You've come, verse 23, he says, you have come to this new Jerusalem, the city of God, to the angels in festal gathering. Verse 23, you have come to the assembly of the firstborn. That word assembly there is the word ecclesia. It's often translated church, 
usually translated church. And it can be here. But it means the gathering. The gathering together of a people. Who are these people? You're one of them. What does he call us? The gathering of the firstborn. The gathering of the firstborn. Now why is that stated like that? Because in the old times, which child was it that inherited everything? The firstborn. The firstborn inherited all the riches of the father. Do you see what he is saying? That everyone who is a believer in Jesus, who is the firstborn, the son of God, everyone who is in Christ, all of us are firstborn. None of us is the youngest. None of us is the middle child. (laughs) All of us are the firstborn and every single one of us inherits it all. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. We're all the firstborn. And notice, we all are what? Verse 23, enrolled. You see that? You have come to this city and you are enrolled in heaven. Enrolled. You see, there were citizenships and roles in ancient times. A, a city had to display the inhabitants, the citizens. And he says, you have come and through Jesus, you have been enrolled in the new Jerusalem. This city coming down from heaven that is beyond our imagination and splendor. This place where God dwells with innumerable angels. That's our hometown. <laughs> that's our hometown. We're enrolled there. Not one of us is a foreigner. Just think of stepping on shore and finding in heaven. Just think of breathing the new air, of waking up in glory and finding it home. Home. It's where you belong. It's our hometown. That's where the gospel takes us. Gospel doesn't take us into judgment, doesn't take us into, God, into condemnation. No, the gospel brings us back. Look at verse number 23. The gospel brings us to God, the judge of all. He has judged our sins in Jesus Christ, and now we are reunited with him. We do no longer fear his judgment for our sins because we've been forgiven through Jesus and we've been brought back to God in whose image we were made. We've been brought along with a lot of other people. Look who's already there. To the spirits of righteous people made perfect. There are millions already there. And in the spirit, we're already with them. Who are these people? Who are the spirits of the righteous made perfect? Well, look at verse 1. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are these? Who are these spirits 
not ghosts. They are the spirits of people with the Lord. They lived on earth. Now they're with the Lord. Who are they? They're the people of Hebrews chapter 11. They're the saints of the old covenant. And there are brothers and sisters in the new covenant who be gone before us. There are millions and millions and millions already there. And we are on our way to join them. We're on our way to be with them. They rest from their labors. And their works are still following after them. And we are here working. And we're going to be with them. And our works will follow us as well. But above all, where does the gospel take us? Listen carefully. The city would be a shambles if it wasn't for this. It would be meaningless if the gospel didn't lead us here. Where does the gospel lead us? Verse 24, the gospel leads us to Jesus. The mediator of the new covenant. He's the one who made the way. He's the one who said it is finished. He's the one who rent the veil in two. He's the one who completed the law and accepted its punishment and fulfilled its demands for us. And with his death has opened the way to glory and with his life, resurrected and seated there, he now is our living head. And we're going to him. We're going to him. Heaven wouldn't be heaven if Jesus were not there. That's where we're going. We're going to him. I'm glad you're going to see your grandma and grandpa. I'm glad you may call them people and meemaw. And I pray they're there, but that's not what will make heaven. It'll be the seeing the face of Jesus. It'll be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see him. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. It will be worth it all when we see Christ bravely run the race, endure. He has sprinkled his blood. You notice that? He sprinkled his blood. That blood is the blood of the new covenant that he shed for us that we're going to commemorate in just a few minutes. And notice something very strange is said here. Maybe you're like me. You're just reading along and you're reading along and you're being called up. Yeah, I'm going there. My name's on the roll. The angels are singing. I'm headed to the new Jerusalem, Mount Zion. I'm headed to the living God, my hometown. And Jesus is there. And then Abel falls in. How did Abel get into this? Verse 5, verse 24 says, His he is the mediator of a new covenant, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel. What, what's this mean? Remember the story of Abel? He offered an acceptable sacrifice to God. God accepted his sacrifice by faith that he made. And his brother Cain killed him. 
and Cain lied about it to God. And God said, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the earth. You have murdered him and his blood cries out. What was the blood of Abel crying out to God? It was crying out for vengeance and justice. Justice. The blood of Abel was demanding vengeance for the sin committed against him and justice for the crime that had been committed against God. That's what the blood of Abel symbolically was saying to God. But what does the blood of Jesus say? The blood of Jesus is crying out to God eternally, not vengeance and justice, but what? Grace and mercy. Grace and mercy, the blood of Jesus speaks for us. I love what the great hymn writer Charles Wesley wrote. Nearly 300 years ago, he wrote the hymn, Arise, my soul, arise. And here's what he said in one of those verses about the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice. He said, five Bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. What do they plead? Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. My sin, yes, to this very day and yours too, cries out for justice and deserves, we deserve the judgment of God as sinners. That's what we deserve. But the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied to our sins. The blood of the sinless one has been offered in our place. And his blood cries out, not justice, You put the justice on me, Father. Now give your grace to them. Hallelujah. What a Savior. That's where we've come. That's where we are. Friends, we're not just headed and marching to Zion. We're already there. Blood-bought citizens. And the angels are singing in heaven but they'll never be able to sing about being redeemed. When we start singing about the blood of Jesus Christ, when we start singing hallelujah to the Lamb who died, when we start singing what it means, amazing grace, they're going to have to be quiet because they don't know it. But we know it. We felt it. And the angels will just have to hush for a while while we praise our Savior. There's two mountains that are compared here. There's Mount Sinai and there's Mount Zion. Oh, friend, which one sounds best to you? You're going to try to save yourself? You're going to try to make yourself right with God? You're going to try to earn it? Then you're going to Mount Sinai. Good luck with that. But when you recognize you can't earn it, that you're lost and hopeless in your sin, 
Not one thing you can do to atone for all the wrongs you've ever done. And you look to the dying lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who said it is finished. You look to him in repentance and faith. Welcome to Mount Zion. You're a citizen. Redeemed and accepted. Two mountaintop comparisons and there's two mountaintop communications and I must close here. You haven't listened nearly quickly enough this morning. There's a warning from the past for the present. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This means Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to God For our forgiveness. And he's speaking to people to turn to him in repentance. For if they, the Israelites, did not escape when they refused him, that's Moses, who warned them on earth, much less will we, we escape if we reject him. Who's the him? Not the pastor, not the preacher, but Jesus. If we reject him who is warning us from heaven. Isn't that strange? Jesus warning us. People don't think of Jesus warning us. But I want to remind you, the first words recorded in Jesus' mouth after he started his ministry, the first word was repent. Repent. Turn from your sin and turn to me. Repent. Friends, the gospel is not just an invitation. It is an invitation. But the gospel is a command. Repent and believe the gospel. Some here this morning, you're deceived. And let me tell you why you're deceived. You're thinking Jesus is just giving an invitation to you. And you haven't made up your mind yet. And that's your deception. Because if you have not bowed your knee to Jesus, you've already made up your mind. Every moment you don't surrender to Jesus Christ, you remain a rebel against the Lamb of God who who experienced your death and pain on the cross. You refuse to bow the knee to the one seated on the throne of heaven. Dear friend, the gospel is not just an invitation, it's command. Today, today, repent and turn to Jesus. For today is the day of salvation. And this is the time that God has accepted. What's coming? He's going to speak again, verse 26. God's voice shook the earth, verse 26, once in the past. But Haggai spoke for God. Yet once more, God told Haggai, I will shake not only the earth, I'm going to shake the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates that the things that exist are going to be removed and shaken so that the things that have been made, that is the things that are eternal, may remain. You see, everything that is man-made, friends, is going away. The only thing that's going to last is that which is of God. 
And so what kind of people ought we to be? What kind of priorities ought we to have if we are living for the things that are not going to last? How foolish, but how wise to live for the things and the one who is eternal and are eternal, right? That day's coming. And where will you be? When that day of shaking comes. Thank God if you're a believer. If this morning you say yes Jesus is my savior. Yes, yes he is my. My faith is in Christ. Then therefore verse 28. Here are the two incredible consecrations that we should make. Mountain sized consecrations. Let's offer to God acceptable worship. What is worship? Worship is all we are responding to all He is. Let's offer to God acceptable worship. With deep gratitude. Why? Because we have received a kingdom that shall not be removed. Isn't that wonderful? What gratitude should fill our hearts as we take from this table, that because Jesus gave his body, he gave his blood, in receiving him, we are receiving a kingdom in our king, which will never end.